Hello, and welcome back to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of the Movement is Life Caucus. Movement is Life is an initiative that aims to reduce health disparities, particularly in the areas of musculoskeletal disease and related conditions such as heart disease and mental health, with a focus on those disparities we see in women, Black and Latino communities, and populations living in rural areas. Let me just mention that all views and opinions expressed in the discussion today are the participants' own and do not necessarily reflect those of their respective organizations or those of Movement is Life. I'm Rose Gonzalez, a registered nurse in Virginia, and I have the great honor to serve on the Movement is Life Caucus Executive Steering Committee, where I constantly advance the nurse and patient perspective The podcast continues to build on our previous discussions focused on value-based models of care. We produced a Movement is Life value monograph, which provides a nice overview of how payment systems impact the provision of care, especially to high-risk vulnerable populations. And you can download this form from our website at movementislifecaucus.com. Now this episode, we'll take a quick look at the impact of value-based models of care from the patient perspective. And that's a perspective we rarely hear from, the receivers of most of the care. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Amanda, who is a part of the Kentucky Home Place team. Welcome, Amanda. Welcome to our podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and also a little bit about Kentucky Home Place. I um, am a mother of three. I am a community health worker with the Kentucky Home Place program. And we have a 30 county range that we cover in Kentucky. And we help people get access to like medications, eyeglasses, dental care, discounted dentures, all kinds of different services that maybe they would not have access to Maybe their insurance don't cover that, or they just can't afford it. So we have different programs that are available for mostly people that are within 100 to 133% of the federal poverty level. That's mostly the range that we serve. Um, We don't charge any money for the services that we provide. We don't have an age range that we do cover, Um, so anyone can can be served through the Kentucky Home Place program, no matter what age they are. What I do remember about Kentucky Home Place when I first went to Hazard, Kentucky, to do the operation change program was talk of supplying someone a refrigerator because there was no place to refrigerate their insulin. And, you know, it's incredible in this day and age to think, you know, somebody may not have a refrigerator to store their insulin, but that's a sad reality of, of our country today. So I'm so glad for the work that you do at Kentucky Home Place um, and the services you provide. I've already learned about how extensive you are. So as you um, work at uh, Kentucky Home Place, talk to me a little bit about the kinds of patients you typically see in any given day or week. Um, most of our population that we see, they're the neediest of the needy. They are 
barely scraping to get by. They can't afford, um, sometimes their $8 copay. I know about, you know, copays because I remember hearing from someone in rural Virginia how they saved for two months to gather up enough funds for copay for a primary care visit just to get their meds filled. So the poverty is extreme. And where you live, you know, in the beautiful mountains in Kentucky, in Hazard, Kentucky, it's hard to get around. And even gas is costly to be able to afford. You have to plan your trip. So poverty is a huge impact there and isolation. Yeah, and then we have, um, I've heard countless of times, um, some of the the clients that came into my office, um, like you said, they, they save for their co-pays. Um, they, they tell me I either buy my medicine or I eat this month. And it's, it's truly sad that it's came down to either improving their health outcomes or they, they feed themselves. Mm-hmm. And sadly, that's, that's the way sometimes that, that comes out to be. And we, as community health workers, we try to, um, fight that barrier for them and we search for resources and if they come in for one thing like medication by the time we get done talking with them we may realize like they may need something else so we Mm -hmm. we kind of like break down and get their trust so by the time they are done talking with us they know that they our door is open they can call us at any time and not be ashamed or scared to open up to us and let us know that they that they need help. Because I think it's hard to ask for help, and there's a certain amount of pride that's involved, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to kind of, kind of bridge that gap, right? Mm-hmm. You have to get that connection to build that safe place you know, so it's so appropriate, Kentucky home place, that safe place. So that conversation, their but for fortune go you or I, right? So it can happen to anyone and there's nothing wrong with, you know, asking for help and needing help at this point in time uh, in our journey called life, right? Mm-hmm. So you, I bet you your um, clients almost see you as friends and angels, yeah, we um, we have a close connection with our clients, and um, they feel like family to us. It's the closeness that we have, and most of us as community health workers, we serve the counties and communities that we grew up in. Bath County, that I'm a community health worker in, I grew up there, so I have that trust in the community. Everyone knows me, and they know that um, they know that I'm I'm wanting to help people. Um, I have a heart to serve, and they know that they can call me if they have a problem or something that they need, and I'll do my best to try to help someone. You know, I, I want our listeners to to understand that trust is paramount, right? Trust is at the top, and because you've already live in that community, and people know you, and you're a reputable organization, people trust you because there's always somebody out there trying to take advantage of people. And as you get older, you're more susceptible to that, right? So you come in, have that trust relationship, and then the journey begins for them to get health care. So talk to me about the types of clients you see. We do some home visits um, for people that cannot get out. 
Um, of course, that was before COVID. We're not able to do that right now. So in Menifee County, I serve that county also. It's more up in the mountain area. A lot of people, there's no transportation there. And uh, transportation there is a huge barrier for people. They're not able to get out and go get things. So I did a lot of home visits in that county. Uh, just some of the the conditions that people have found themselves in, it's just they do the best that they can and they don't know really what to do or who to call. We get donations sometimes of medical supplies. There's a lot of people that... Um, need incontinence supplies. Mm. When we get those, um, we donate those. We give those to clients. Uh, We deliver those to a lot of people because they're not able to get out and come pick those up. I do a lot of the home visits for the the elderly population, just so, especially like the wintertime so that they don't have to get out and be in the cold and Mm -hmm. things like that. And and do you deliver food too or? I've had people um, call that have been out of food and we I've taken food to people. I don't typically deliver food um, on a regular basis. Um, it just depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, commodities um, that the counties give out, they normally um, go and pick those up on their own. If there's a certain um, problem that someone can't get out to go pick those up because of transportation, um, I can, as long as they give permission um, for those to be picked up and brought to them, I'm willing to take those out to the people. I have different times had people um, actually right in the beginning of the COVID. I had a gentleman call me and he asked if I knew any food banks in the area. He had just moved and he said, I'm I'm running low on food and I've I'm going to be a while before I get any more money. Mm-hmm. And I told him some food banks and I just, something just kind of tugged at me and told me to ask him how much, you know, how much food do you have? Do you have enough food to get you through a day or a couple of days? And he, he just opened up to me and just let me know that he only had a few crackers and um, like a little thing of noodles. I just knew that I had to do something. I had to find something for this gentleman. So I started making phone calls. And by that evening, I had a lot of food that could just take (laughs) and drop off to him. Like, it was amazing how people came together and um, helped him out. And I was able to take those to him. And it was just a huge blessing. And he was so appreciative. And I built that, um, that connection with him. And I still call and check on him. And he every now and then calls and he'll just see how I'm doing. And it's just those connections that we make along the way that it's a friend for life. Mm-hmm. And, and and it sounds like you have that inner sense after working in this arena for a while, right? And knowing your community to feel just over a phone or whatever, right? Just to feel, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not sure I have the whole story. Mm-hmm. And you go one step further. That's a testament to your experience and knowledge and working in this arena and really understanding people who need services but are afraid to kind of really 
totally open up and share the whole story, right? So you've tuned in to him and were able to identify a real need and then be able to provide it. Now he has a contact. He's not alone and, um, and he knows who to reach out to. So that's wonderful for you to be able to do that. Cause I could feel as you were telling the story, I could feel your heartstrings going into that experience. And yet how wonderful for that man to have found you that day. So that is great. Now, how have those experiences changed with COVID where maybe you can't go out to visit or um, has that changed a lot with your clients or they're expressing concern? I do have some clients that, um, where I'm not able to have that one-on-one with them. We do a lot of phone visits now because of the contact part of it. They they miss that that in-person connection. And a lot of them, they don't have family. Sometimes I would have clients just come in because they were just maybe lonely. They just wanted someone just to talk to and not really even needing anything. They just, they wanted just to stop in and say hi. Now that we're not able to um, have that in-person visit, it's harder. We do porch drop-offs now. If people are needing supplies or um, like a shower chair, things like that, mm-hmm. then we will do like the visit over the phone or like a Zoom visit. And then we will um, do a porch drop-off so that we can keep that social distance. So we're we're still able to... Um, try to meet the need the best that we can, but it's just not, we're not able to have that complete connection that we did before. And it's, I think it's making it hard on some of them that they don't have, they don't have that social aspect that they did before. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're alone. So I want to go back to 2019 when um, we were doing Operation Change in Hazard, Kentucky, and we really were working on this uh, monograph to talk about value in healthcare. And uh, Amanda, you were part of a focus group that uh, Keisha convened um, to help us understand um, from your perspective and from the individuals, the clients that you serve, what does healthcare look like for them and um, and what what they valued in healthcare? And we had a whole group. I think we had about maybe 10, 10 or 15 people at the most, if that many, um, probably closer to 12, I think, that really came together and we had some structured questions that we asked and really asked for feedback from a lot of your, you and a lot of your colleagues about what their clients viewed as uh, value or the kind of healthcare they wanted to see, and then we talked uh, about you. So let's let's talk first about some of the things we discussed about what um, the clients feel is important to them when they go to a healthcare encounter. Because I remember hearing a lot of um, missed appointments, uh, long waiting those kind of things that happen to your clients who really, like you said, save up, they save up for their copay, they get to the office and things go wrong. I feel um, that a lot of my clients, uh, when they go to the doctor um, or see a provider, they don't feel like they're being heard or listened to um, and they're being rushed. 
Um, like you said, they have saved up for their um, copay for that visit. A lot of our Medicare people have a lot more of out-of-pocket costs than um, the Medicaid uh, people do. They're not being listened to like they feel like they should. They're maybe being rushed through the visit. I know that providers have a um, allotted time that they can spend with each patient. And then, of course, the long wait to get an appointment. You'll call, you're sick that day, but it's a week or two before you're able to get in to see a doctor. The biggest part is probably just not being heard. They feel like they're just not being listened to. In that vein of discussion where they feel they're not being listened to, and many of them, like you said, shared that they had long waits, and I think being uh, passed over. You shared a personal story with us that was very moving, really showed us how the system fails individuals. Well, from uh, my past experience, I was looked over and not listened to by a set of doctors. I had been diagnosed after the fact with breast cancer at age 30. In the beginning, I knew that something wasn't right. I knew something was wrong and I wanted further testing and I was told no because of my age. Even after my mother had already been diagnosed with breast cancer, even with a family history, I was still told no. Something wasn't right and I knew that I wanted further um, evaluation I knew something needed to be done, but I could not get them to listen. It wasn't until my mother was diagnosed a second time with breast cancer that they finally took me serious. She was diagnosed with a different type of breast cancer the second time, and I was finally able to get a mammogram. They did a biopsy, and it came back cancer. So what I have learned from my experience, and I have tried to advocate is if you feel like something is wrong or you feel the need to get a second opinion, if you feel like something's just not right, we know our bodies better than anyone. Go get the second opinion. If the first doctor will not listen, take the, the time to listen to your concerns. Go to someone else because I honestly feel like if my mother had not been diagnosed a second time, then I would probably have been very advanced in my cancer diagnosis. Luckily, mine was found at an earlier stage than most people. I was able to have surgery and um, I didn't have to have treatments because of the surgery that I chose to take. I have the cancer gene. So does my mother. So we have that going for us also. So it's it's very important. Um, if you take anything from me that I say today, don't let anyone ever tell you that you don't deserve that that second opinion or that you don't need to go get that testing. Because even if it's if they tell you that it's not anything, that's peace of mind for you. Thank you for sharing that story. And, you know, from your interactions with the, these providers, do you have a sense why they wouldn't listen to you? They kept saying I was too young. Um, they didn't feel like I met the requirements to have cancer. I was angry for a long time, like before I was finally able to get a mammogram done. My mother, she even, she was upset. She's like, with having, you know, I've had cancer. I don't know why they're not taking you serious. And my mom, she even said, 
I would go through it again just to know that you was able to find your cancer. I, I call it a God thing, um, how it happened. Um, the day that my mother found out that she had cancer and had the cancer gene, I went, I worked next door to where I go to the doctor. So I walked over on my lunch break and I told him, I was like, I need to get scheduled for a mammogram as soon as possible. The receptionist looked at me and she's, cause she knows my family. And she said, you're not going to believe this. She said, our mobile unit is coming today. I can fit you in on your, on your break this afternoon. She said, if you can walk over on your break, we'll fit, we'll squeeze you in this afternoon. Like I get chills thinking about it. It was just amazing how all the pieces came together. Everything just started just finally coming together for me. And then it was like two days they called and they're like, we feel like something's wrong with this mammogram. You need to go, you know, go to your, whoever your mom's seeing, you need to go see them. And then I went and had the um, diagnostic mammogram done and they decided to do the biopsy. And it was just a God thing. That's all I can say. It was a God thing. You know, in, in many ways, it sounds like you said, like divine intervention, right? That this, all these things came together at once. But what I think seems frustrating, and I wonder if it's an outcome of value-based care, that you didn't fill, fit into the parameters of, of the disease process and the age group it you know, it manifests itself in, right? So they're kind of like looking at you like you can't have it, you're not in the parameters. Instead of looking at you and what you were saying, because you're absolutely right, nobody knows their body better than themselves, right? I know what my body feels. And for a provider to just go through um, guidelines maybe and just kind of focus on guidelines rather than on the patient. And I think... That's one of the things I heard at that focus group. They're not looking at me as the patient, as the individual coming in with the problem. They're looking at a guideline. Oh, this couldn't be you. No, you don't fit into this. No, please, somebody, don't just type that you saw me in the computer, but can you look at me and listen to me and really heed what I'm saying? So in our discussions, I think, we realized that some of these payment systems with parameters like that, that said, oh, we can't give you a mammogram, right? Or we don't even listen to that because we have these guidelines that are like one size fits all. You're outside of that. You know, you're you and you have a history of it, right? And then you are coming in with something's not right, a red flag, and they don't pay attention. You know, I hope somebody gave you an apology somewhere along the way. But I'm, I'm really glad that you had some divine intervention. <laughs> it shouldn't happen in today's healthcare system to anybody. So I thank you for sharing that story. We heard a lot about care and how maybe the providers don't have enough time because they're limited with time. So we went through this exercise when we were there where we had the ladies talk about um, in the focus group what would be their ideal health system? I'm going to ask you that question from all your experience in working, you know, with all your clients and your own personal experience. If you had to describe or create an ideal healthcare system, what are the big takeaways that you would suggest needs to happen in healthcare? First thing would be more affordable. 
more affordable for um, especially our Medicare people. They have the hardest time, I think, um, over anyone being able to afford their medicines. Insulin is a big thing. Um, we see that daily people um, struggling to get insulin. Um, Two, three hundred dollars a month, um, even with their insurance sometimes. And they just cannot afford to pay that. There's no way. Um, and then being able to have more time with the provider, that would be ideal. Do you think that um, the clients feel respected by their providers? And do they, do you think they, have a trusting relationship like they have with you with their providers? I think some feel that um, connection with their providers. I personally, with my provider, she is wonderful. And I feel during my cancer, she was great. Um, she actually fought trying to get me a mammogram. And of course, the insurance kind of kicked back on that because she wasn't a specialist. So I do feel like some of my clients feel like they have a connection with some of the providers, but then there's also some clients that feel like um, they spend more time with the nurses than they do the actual provider. And it's like they're in the door and back out um, and they sit and type on the computer the whole time. I've actually heard, um, actually my parents have said um, they didn't even look up from the computer he never looked at me the whole time. It's kind of sad. I mean, to not have that eye contact, that personal um, experience with the, the uh, patient. It sounds like if, if you're able to speak out for yourself, you know, and finally take a stand and, you know, create that communication um, link with the provider. Some people may have better relationships, but it doesn't sound like the system is focused on that link. It sounds like the system is focused, like in your case, your your primary care couldn't, or the, the individual you were seeing couldn't even order the mammogram, right? They were, the insurance was beating back because you didn't feel, they weren't a specialist and they weren't, and that you didn't fill these parameters. So why should you need it? That's like, an, so the system, this these payment systems and the way this functioning where people are so eager to put data in computers, they're not even really listening to the patient. And so if a patient is easily intimidated, right? And, um, you know, and can't speak out for themselves, it's kind of like they saved up all this money. They saved this money, right? And $8 is a lot of money for them to go to this visit that's rushed through and maybe they not, haven't been heard. And that has to feel so frustrating for individuals who are looking for answers. And that's a function of the system that we have right now. Um, and I'm sure that since you're in rural community, it's not that easy to find a specialist. From where um, we live, we have to travel um for certain specialists, about an hour. Um, some of the other areas, even longer, that they have to travel. Transportation for some of the clients, that's that's a huge problem. And sometimes they don't meet the qualifications for the transportation that's, um, like even Medicaid um, people, they may not even meet the qualifications to get the transportation um, 
they have to give a certain amount of time um, for their appointment. If they forget to schedule transportation, they have to miss that appointment. And there's just different qualifications that you have to you have to meet for a certain transportation. It's hard to be able to even go see a, a specialist. I, I can only imagine how hard it must be to see a, a specialist with so few and then traveling a long distance and trying to navigate that. Do you feel that you and your colleagues at Kentucky Home Place serve as navigators for these individuals frequently as they interact with the healthcare system? Absolutely. We help them navigate through um, a lot of the healthcare system. Um, we help them with their insurance, a lot of the, the different healthcare needs that they have. We help them sign up for insurance. Um, when it's open enrollment, if they want to change their insurance plan, we can assist them with that. Even down to um, calling the doctor with them if they they need to call. And they sometimes people just need that little bit of a push to be able to have someone to kind of be there for them, for them to speak out. And we're kind of the support system that they need to feel like that they can speak up for themselves. Amanda, we're so grateful for the work, the kind of work you do. You're very special to do that work because I know it has to be challenging. I know it has to be challenging. You know, healthcare is really a partnership. It should be a partnership, right? It should be a partnership between me, you know, the patient and the provider. And we should look at, we should be able to have the trust that you are able to have with your with your clients in Kentucky Home Place, right? To enable that trust relationship so people are put on a healthier journey in life, right? So they can find out maybe what they need to do, what's, what could they need help with, and how could I feel better, right? Because we all want to feel better. So there's much that we have to do in our system to change that. And part of that is really speaking out on, you know, on podcasts like this to bring attention to it. So first of all, I'm so grateful to you today, Amanda, for sharing your story, for talking to us about Kentucky Home Place and the work you do, and for the clients you served. I'm sure you're a blessing to them. Um, And and you sounds like you do incredible work in uh, in the mountains of Hazard. And um, I appreciate you for coming on today and sharing. Thank you for allowing me to be here with you all today. I appreciate it. And I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today for another discussion about health disparities. You'll be able to uh, access a transcript of the podcast on our website, movementislifecaucus.com. Remember to subscribe to us on any of the Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or Apple podcasts. Please be safe, be well. Let's keep working to achieve health equity. Let's keep those doors open. Amanda, Thanks again. Have a great afternoon. So appreciate it. Until the next time. Bye, everybody. 